0: Welcome. I'm your host, Roger Tucker. I'm a native of Newark, New Jersey. I'll be interviewing artists, historians, authors, and other cultural thought leaders to discuss the cultural impact and influence that Newark has had and continues to have on their lives and work. Ananda Bell is an Australian-born, U.S.-based artist and curator. She is the director and chief curator of the Paul Robeson Galleries. The Paul Robeson Gallery operates a network of exhibition venues and dedicated and interstitial spaces across the campus, including the Robeson Campus Center and Express Newark. Prior to working at Rutgers, Bill has worked in various not-for-profit arts organizations, including the Everhart Museum in Pennsylvania and Snug Harbor Cultural Center in New York. In Australia, she worked at the National Gallery of Victoria and Bendigo Art Gallery. Her artwork has been shown at various venues in the USA and Australia. In 2016, she was the recipient of a New Jersey State Council on the Arts Fellowship as a practicing artist. Ananda received a Master's of Fine Arts from Monash University, a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Painting and Printmaking at RMIT University, and a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology and English from the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Ananda.
1: Thank you. It's lovely to be here
0: with you virtually. Great, great. Ananda, um, when did you arrive in Newark and what brought you here?
1: So I arrived in Newark in 2007 and I came for the job at the Ropes and Galleries. So I had recently uh, migrated to the United States and I had a few other jobs in Pennsylvania and New York and then I saw this job advertised and I thought that it looked really interesting specifically because it was a university gallery so there was an emphasis not on the commercial aspect of the art world and also that the focus was both inwards and outwards looking so uh, the populations that were being served were as much about off-campus populations and the various populations in the city, as well as the usual kind of uh, suspects that you have on campus, the faculty, staff and students.
0: Yeah, your location is great. You're in downtown Newark. Yes. And you're part of that uh, University Heights. I mean, you're surrounded by wonderful universities and thousands of students. So, And I guess that's been really growing since you arrived and started at Rutgers
1: Yes, yes. So the original um, hub for the Paul and Galleries was uh, built uh, 40 years ago as part of the, you know, development of that aspect of the campus. And then uh, in 2014, we have a new chancellor arrived, Nancy Cantor, who had a very specific and very uh, vast uh, mission for the university, And she had a vision which included the idea that the university's kind of boundaries within the city would be permeable. And so this evolved in a very concrete way into a a manifestation of an arts community that is both of the city and of the campus, and that's known as Express Nook, and that's in a building that I walked past for, you know, more than a decade, I would say, and it was completely, you know, abandoned. There was large tracts of open land in, right in the light like this pristine, beautiful location in downtown Newark. And finally, there was a wonderful kind of uh, conflation of, you know, uh, the money to do it, the interest to do it, the political kind of uh, machinations that go into making something like this happen. And the gallery was one of the entities that expanded into this
0: space. All right do you were you here when Haynes the original Haynes department store was open
1: no no oh. I I was always I think I know that they closed I think the site had been vacant since the early 80s so a little my first trip to the United States was in 1989 so just a little bit late for me
0: great right okay so I remember going to the uh, superb exhibitions at the Paul Robeson Galleries on the Rutgers Newark campus years before Newark Express was launched. And as you said, it was originally launched 40-something years ago. What was the mission of the gallery then, and how has that current mission evolved?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. So at the time that the gallery was established, the first exhibition was uh, driven by a program that has not existed, but is being brought back onto the campus. And this was a museum studies program. And so the students that were currently enrolled (coughs) in the visual arts department worked with a collection at the Newark Museum and created an exhibition that was on display in the campus centre gallery. And from that point, there were a number of shows that we've always historically done, uh, graduating shows for the students, the graphic designers, the visual arts students. And we've done a vast array of, like, thematic exhibitions throughout the years, collection-based exhibitions, solo exhibitions, and really the full gamut of any particular (laughs) exhibition-type things that are not specifically visual arts, that might be more of a sociological, anthropological nature. So really many, many different styles of
0: exhibitions have occurred. Great. Okay, so uh, again, I, I mentioned the original Paul Robeson Galleries, and then the Express Nork space—are yes. uh, they curated, or were they thought to be curated differently than the exhibitions, uh, you know, on the campus? You like to use yeah.
1: Uh, so the campus center gallery is uh, a large, large room, both um, you know horizontally and vertically. It has like twenty-four foot high ceilings, and it has a, a screening room next to it. And so that space since Express Newark has been in place, has been used for solo shows for our artist-in-residence. So at the moment we have an exhibition by German Petrie, who is Newark-born and raised, phenomenal artist. Um, The work is not easy. It's uh, challenging. He is an incredibly articulate artist, both in a visual sense and in the spoken word sense. And so each year we have been dedicating that space in the last few years to a solo show for the Artist-in-Residence. And our Artist-in-Residence program uh, is something that was made possible by the Express Newark development and we have a dedicated studio space where artists can make their work, um, have access to other Uh, entities on site. So we have a shine portrait studio, which is a fully equipped photography space. We have form design studio, which does uh, 3D printing, laser cutting, laser etching. Um, We have labs that are equipped with all kinds of um, computers to do, you know, moving image related material. So whatever the artist decides to do, we then put the outcome over in the campus center gallery. Um, For the spaces that we have at Express Newark, these were designed very specifically to show uh, the broadest array of art that we could imagine. So we built them their museum quality in terms of temperature, climate. We have total control over the light, which is important if you're doing uh, video-based work, light-based work, which is something that, you know, artists do nowadays, Uh, internet-based work and... We also have a couple of smaller spaces at Express Newark which are more responsive and turn over more quickly. And one of those spaces is a window gallery that is um, a reference to the Haynes department store when they had windows. And I like to think of that particular space also as, um, as an artist Marcel Duchamp. Many people have heard of him many, many years ago, he actually did a department store window in Newark. And it was to launch a monograph, I believe, on him. And he borrowed um, New Descending the Staircase, very famous work. And he put that in a window in Newark. And then he dismembered mannequins and assembled them to match the uh, figure going up the stairs. Anyway, it lasted a weekend. And uh, people were outraged because the mannequins were naked <laughs> not because the mannequin had been dismembered but because the mannequins were naked so after a weekend he was told to take that rubbish and depart so i like to think that there's a long history of some very very interesting work being done in uh, window spaces and um we also have like a, a project a small project space where we do all kinds of uh you know, wonderful shows. We've currently got one curated by Adrian Wheeler, um, who's used to work doing an annual show with us with Gladys Brower. So, you know, some phenomenal women artists in the city of Newark. So, yeah, we have a range of different spaces to do different types of projects.
0: Great. The uh, Marcel Duchamp uh, mention is amazing. Uh, I remember, of course, all of us, If you know, we had art history. He was one of the <laughs> sort of... Uh, characters that everyone sort of said wow he's really cool um do you do you have any information as to what window and what year
1: I can I can actually send you an article about it I think it was Bamberger's department store I can't remember the year but I can certainly send you the article it was when I first moved to Newark and I wanted to know as much about the city and the art history in the city and it was an obscure kind of article I came across I'm like oh okay, that's interesting. I like that as a kind of metaphor for disrupting, you know, disrupting the environment, using art as a way to provoke uh, provoke an experience in somebody. It doesn't have to be a negative one, can be a positive one, but I like the attitude behind the work.
0: <laughs> that's amazing. I, um, On the way to uh, arts high school, I went to arts high school in the, um, uh, graduated in seventy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I worked in, I remember walking past, I would take the trolley from North Nork, mm-hmm. get up out of the trolley and walk past the department store, Bambergers and marveled at the windows mm-hmm. and said, one day I'm gonna work at Bambergers. I'm gonna figure out how to do those windows. Well, fast forward, uh, I guess junior, senior year at arts, I got to work there. I didn't get to work on the windows. I was working in the young mm-hmm. men's department. But it was such an amazing um, experience, you know, to sort of grow up and to see a space and then actually, you know, work in that space. And so I'm really jazzed and I can't wait to see the Marcel Duchamp uh, installation and I'll be sure to include that on our website. Okay. I will send you straight after this. <laughs> Absolutely. That's, that is that is so amazing. Again, Newark as uh, as you said, a place where so many artists and industries were sort of disruptors mm-hmm. during their time, before their time. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's, that's great to know. Um, most of us, not all of us know that Paul Robeson was a celebrated black American singer, actor, activist and an alumnus of Rutgers University. Yes. He uh, said, and it's, this quote is one of my favorite quotes, artists are the gatekeepers of truth. We are civilization's radical voice. Mm -hmm. It's inspiring. Absolutely. Has the Black Lives Matter movement and attacks on LGBTQ people accelerated the mission and the direction of the gallery's curatorial themes?
1: I would say that certainly um, Black Lives Matter, uh, trans, LGBTQ, recent attacks on Asian Americans are all things that are. Horrific and unacceptable. And Paul Robeson, if he were here to comment, would be kind of quite disgusted by these activities. I think he spent his life championing the possibility that people could exist, coexist in a way that was not um, suppressing people's opinions, but having a voice, people having a voice, and that society is richer for having. Multiple points of view, multiple voices. So he uh, and his idea that we're, you know, civilization's radical voice, I think it's really important that artists, you know, take this mantle, take it seriously, and create work that might possibly have either an impact on just one person in terms of changing the way that they're thinking about things or drawing attention to something that they might not have been aware of before. And also, you know, this kind of activity can build into a movement which can impact on the way that many people think about, you know, circumstances they might not even have been aware of before.
0: Right. I think associate many of the exhibitions that i've seen over the years and and currently at the ropes and galleries with this idea of a voice this radical voice this uh the themes and the materials and the artist um as as uh, german and i remember seeing his work with the tard dolls years yes. ago uh, on market street um i i think I, I more than think, I know that Nork has been sort of this um, incubator mm-hmm. for um, radical voices in theater, radical voices in uh, fine arts. And um, so I, I was just curious if, if you've seen or expect to see, for instance, with the student show, an amplified voice or more voices um, that are being informed by these incredibly um, um, global movements.
1: Yes, yes. Actually, there is one student uh, in the exhibition who has created uh, a body of work that looks at sporting figures that are celebrated for their, you know, obviously physical capabilities in whatever sport that they undertake, but also the fact that they then use their identity to promote issues of importance that are outside the sporting arena. But because they have a voice and people are looking at them, they can talk about issues relating to race or gender. So, yes, there's definitely, I think, the student show this year, obviously, the (laughs) One of the most pressing uh, influences being the pandemic in that we have a group of students that would normally be, you know, creating work in studios, having that kind of community who have been, you know, (laughs) relegated to their bedrooms, their, you know, porches, their basements, wherever it is that they can find a space to work. And I think the issues that they've been grappling with have certainly related to Black Lives Matter but also relating to social isolation, um, relating to how to take an idea that you thought you might have access to, you know, a ceramics workshop and now you don't. And you have to totally about turn, put all your energy into thinking of another way to express yourself. So the, the show is fantastic. If anybody's interested, we have a link on our website. It's a virtual gallery and it'll be open until December, the end of the year. So I. Encourage people to go and have a look at
0: these works. Great, well, I would love for you to share that link with me, and I'll include sure. sure. it on the uh, One, on the website. Two, three, I've always been um, fascinated with this idea of um, how uh, communities uh, evolve, how they transform. And Newark is, you know, like many cities, uh, you know, it's a harbor city. It's one of the oldest cities in in the country. Uh, this idea of uh, change and transformation. I remember the students that I saw in the, you know, late 60s, early 70s -hmm. on the campus. It was mostly a commuter campus. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think there were any dorms at the time. Uh, But I remember that the students were primarily white. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know because as, you know, uh, being in Newark um, frequently for a variety of reasons, Mm -hmm. I know uh, that Newark has... Changed. the neighborhoods have changed, the, um, you know, who the city attracts. I, you know, I grew up in North North, it was primar- primarily Italian. <laughs> it's probably larger Dominican or other various, um, you know, um, Latino and or Hispanic groups. And um, the Portuguese section, um, uh, the Ironbound <laughs> is probably more Brazilian Uh, than the earlier possibly um, European Portuguese. Have you seen, um, has the work uh, changed um, since you've been there? I mean, you have been uh, there obviously the entire time, but since you've been there, I I noticed that um, when I look at some of the scholastics work over the last 10, 15 years, Mm -hmm. that the palettes have changed. The palettes, the color palettes, and, and I noticed there are more, portraits, self-portraits of Asian and Middle Eastern students. Mm-hmm. And I know that the the palette of their cultures, uh, even though they may have studied a very Western, like all of us, you know, the, the color wheel and all mm-hmm. of the more Eurocentric um, uh, color themes, that I... S- I could see over the years that palette changing. Mm-hmm. Um, the subjects were pretty much the same, you know, it was either landscape or people or what mm-hmm. the, the colours. And so have you noticed that or is that something that maybe at the graduate level is not as obvious? Or
1: um, That's an interesting question. I think that, you know, the student shows have been, you know, so vastly different and so vastly experimental. Um, I think that the influences, obviously the, the thing that, the change that in the time that you're talking about that would have had the widest influence is simply access to information via the internet. So, you know, the students now have exposure to not just things that they might personally be able to go and see within their immediate environments, but they have access to anything in the world. And I think that, you know, social media such as Instagram is an incredibly powerful tool, again, for sharing information and for being able to go down rabbit holes if you have a particular interest in a particular subject matter. I think that certainly, you know, your reference to the diversity within the campus population, um, Newark was a very, very white campus for a long period of time. And it was only because of the um, black organisation of students that did a takeover of one of the buildings on campus and they demanded more diversity within um, the teachers as well as the students. And that actually facilitated the appointment of the first ever um, black professor, and that was Clement Price, who, of course, is well-known to anybody in Newark. He was a a phenomenal man uh, highly articulate and historian and connected to everybody. <laughs> yes,
0: yes. yes. Yeah, was, a dynamic uh, thought leader for uh, for the city of Newark and yes. for the region. Yes. So yes. he was the first black professor at the, on the Newark campus?
1: Yeah, he was, and this was as a result of the black organisation of students taking over a site on campus. So, you know, I think that that's something that the campus can be proud of it's not to say that we can rest on our laurels and that we have achieved everything that we need to achieve. Um, there's always work to be done, but there is a history there. Of students feeling very invested in what their university is like in terms of a place that you not only go and learn about things from textbooks, but you learn about how life can be in general.
0: Yes, great. What what was or what has been your most interesting challenge in directing and curating for the gallery?
1: <laughs> apart from the usual kind of physical ones of you know artworks not behaving in the way that you anticipated that they might um i guess the challenge for me would be one that's not specifically related to a single work but just the general challenge of working with contemporary art because many times uh artwork we may actually just be finished literally as you're putting it in the space or hanging it on the wall or installing it somewhere. So there are challenges that arise as a consequence of that. Um, I think also, you know, it's a very dynamic situation. There are things that are changing. An idea that you may have for a show as, a you know, an idea in your head when you're actually trying to realise it in real life, there are things that change, evolve, improve don't go the way that you wanted. So, but I think anybody working as a curator with contemporary artists would relish this challenge. Like I love working with um, with the element of surprise there. Um, you just have to be very organised so that when the surprise happens, you can account for it within, you know, getting everything done in the time that you need to do it. Wow. Um, and I guess one of the shows that had the biggest element of surprise, which was one of the, Uh, bigger kind of logistical challenges we did, which for our 30th anniversary, we decided to play uh, the Exquisite Corpse, uh, a drawing game that was uh, popularised by the surrealist artists that relied on uh, chance and automatic drawing techniques. And we played the game with 120 artists. (laughs) And it was, um, you know, we, it was, wonderful like we had no idea what the show was going to look like at the end we you know had to sustain relationships with 120 artists for a period of time while the drawings were being made and created we we're posting them backwards and forwards artists did not look at who they were you know collaborating with on drawings and then at the uh at the reception at the end we unveiled all of these drawings and it was it was brilliant totally surprising <laughs> and wonderful great.
0: What? Uh, how big is your staff? Is it, does it grow and shrink depending on the Pandemics. time of the year? <laughs> Pandemic, yeah. um,
1: we have uh, core staff. Um, we have at the moment three uh, full-time core staff, and uh, we cover all aspects of Calorie operations. We also have. Uh, some wonderful part-time staff who uh, install exhibitions and who are gallery attendants. And then we have uh, people that are listed as staff but are more uh, casual in the way that they operate. We engage artists as artist educators, so we employ them to conduct programs for us in various on- and off-site kind of, kind of scenarios.
0: <laughs> Great. Well, thank you. I I want to uh, take this time now to move on to your your own personal art practice. Okay. Okay. Um, So my first question is, how do you balance your gallery direction and curatorial duties with your personal art practice?
1: Um, I think that the way that I think about it is it's The wonderful thing about being in the United States is that you don't have to define yourself in a kind of binary way that is um, certainly more common in Australia. Uh, So since I've been here, I've had the luxury of both working with artists in a professional sense, in my day job as a curator, but um, working with artists in terms of being colleagues and being inspired when I'm a practising artist. And so the kind of balancing act, it's it's a little tricky because it's the way that I think about it is I'm just surrounded by stimulation, you know, culture, philosophy, ideas all the time. And I don't necessarily know when I encounter an idea or a person or an exhibition, how that's going to impact on me. So I don't even necessarily separate the, you know, two aspects of my practice.
0: I see. Do you... Uh, primarily um, work in your own personal studio? Do you work at Rutgers? Is it sort of a combination of, of both?
1: Oh, I would love to come and take over Ruckers and start making artwork there, but I do not. I um, deliberately and strategically keep my personal artwork away from my Ruckers work. I, uh, at the moment during the pandemic, I have been uh, homebound I'm going to be in the fall. I'm doing a residency at Gutenberg, um, which is in New Jersey, and they have wonderful facilities there. It's a, it's a gallery space. They do all kinds of creative practice. Since I've been in Newark, though, I've had uh, I had a studio at Gallery Faro for a while, and I had a, uh, a studio with uh, Rebecca Jampol's earlier incarnation when she had studios over in Broad Street, not the current ones, but previous ones. So I've had various studios since I've been in Newark.
0: Great. Thank you. In describing your print series, which is, I think, one of the most we, we talked about uh, earlier about uh, Ropes talking about you know, radical radical actions, um, your yes. print series Ways to Refer to Her. Yes. I think is very radically... Um, arresting, and thought-provoking. What you said specifically, language both reflects and creates reality. It has an impact on thoughts and actions. How we use language alters the way we experience the world. Such commonly used language to refer to women is inherently negative, steeped in age-old biases, sexism, and misogyny. This series contains 100 words that have been or are in use to refer to women. So both this and your Yellow Paper series use text pattern to investigate negative themes about women from the male lens. Mm -hmm. When did you start this visual practice direction and what originally informed or influenced it?
1: Well, I think that as uh, an artist, I, I can't remember a time where I haven't, thought of myself as an artist, as somebody specifically uh, affiliating with feminist ideology, I would say as a teenager, certainly, Um, there's a very famous Australian feminist, Jermaine Greer, who wrote a book called The Female Eunuch that I can remember sneaking off my mum's shelf to go and read. And, you know, uh, she made some fairly radical suggestions like uh, women should accept accept themselves and to the point where you must taste your own menstrual blood otherwise you know you're buying into these ideas that women's bodies are inherently disgusting and revolting so as a teenage girl reading this it was pretty radical and very interesting and I followed that through and I've been reading you know about feminism you um, know <laughs> all my life now so I think, uh, you know, the series A Hundred Ways to Refer to Her was to really draw attention to the fact there are certain words that are used, and I won't say them necessarily <laughs> um, there are certain words that are used to refer to women that are, you know, depending on where you come from, either latently offensive or in some cases they've been reappropriated by women as a way of taking back a word that's had a negative connotation and bringing it back and giving it a new power that is actually a strength rather than an insult. I think there are words within the series that are used in a kind of patronising or cajoling or quasi complimentary but not really because they really are put down as much as they are a compliment. And so, this particular series I created as a way to just, you know, draw attention to these words. Um, And it's since I decided I was just going to do a hundred, I started off just doing a few, and then all of a sudden it's a hundred. I I still see words, and I'm thinking, I really wish I could have put that one in there. I mean, there's an abundance of words for women that are not complimentary in any way, shape, or form. So. And some of them, you know, are making a comeback in a in a positive way, but not all of them, and some of them are obsolete. Um, they're so random now that people are not even aware of them. Um, the Yellow Wallpaper series was based on obviously a book by the same name uh, effectively documenting the... Um, uh, how to put it a woman that was considered to have inappropriate um, temperament being sent away to a place to you know effectively chill out calm down and get her act together and you know the end of the story is that the wallpaper is you know crawling and she is literally going out of her mind and that particular book was interesting to me because really Anybody that has been, any female that has been speaking against the grain or outside of her station or her place in life is generally, you know, the, uh, the idea of casting them as being crazy or historical or, you know, insane uh, is, you know, not uncommon at all. So those, those kind of sentiments informed that work.
0: Right. The, um, I, I was curious if uh, during the, any of the exhibitions, did you provide an opportunity for people to write down or their, their responses to these, this exhibition?
1: Um, when I've had, uh, when I've shown these works in the past, I have not actually done the writing down thing, but generally people have been very uh, comfortable coming up and telling me what they think. And that's great. That's why you put things out there so that people will come and uh, express their opinions and, you know, people have liked it. People have been horrified. I can remember, you know, one of the words, um, the C word. I remember being in a lecture once Um when uh, a feminist art historian was talking about uh, feminist art of the 1960s and uh, used this word repeatedly, and people left the room in tears, they were so horrified by it. So, you know, people will generally come and tell you what they think about your work if you're open to it, and I think it's wonderful. That's why that's why artists put up work out there so that they can, you know evoke a response
0: absolutely we're the only ones who want to sign our work and let people know that we did it
1: yes yes
0: we're always welcoming any kind of reaction and that as you know sometimes informs our next uh series
1: yes yes definitely and it's that's what it is that's the beauty of it otherwise you would just sit in your room and scribble away on a piece of paper and never show anybody anything so
0: is, is the uh, exhibition in a book form that you can purchase? Or is, is um, it a-
1: the, uh, there is a version of uh, the Ways to Refer to Her that is like a, an artist's book that is bound with a pink pussy bow, and that has been available at Printed Matter. Um, and the yellow wallpaper, no, that's, that's, <laughs> that has not been put into any kind of uh,
0: consumable version. Oh, great! Well, that's great to know. Uh, Printed Matter is one of my favorite destinations.
1: It's wonderful.
0: It, yeah, and I remember. I guess it's obviously gone through different incarnations, but you just don't want to leave. You walk in and you just oh yes, just so immersive, and uh, it addresses so many things. So yes. thank you for reminding me. I I, I don't know if during uh, the pandemic or COVID if they're open anymore, but. Um, probably, I guess, uh, they probably have some kind of attendance, um, regulation that allows you to, to visit. Yes. So yeah. Thank you for reminding me about that. And I'm going to hopefully that, uh, ways to refer to her is, uh, available. Okay. Yeah. Now, and I'll have you sign it for me. Okay. <laughs> so, so Ananda, how has working in Newark informed your art practice?
1: Oh my goodness. Um, so as uh, as a curator, one of the things that I really believe very strongly in as a curator of contemporary art is that the art is one thing, but it's really an expression of people's ideas and obtaining access to people's ideas really comes about through communication and relationships. And so my job at the Roverson Galleries is the longest job I've ever had in my life. And one of the most brilliant parts about my job is I've been around long enough that I've gotten to meet some really phenomenal people. And so the city of Newark is both large enough and small enough that you can get to know people and there are still plenty of opportunities to be had, Um, you know, pre-pandemic, There are many, many wonderful galleries in town. Hopefully we're all going to pull through and there will still be more when we emerge in whatever form that is like. Um, But the city of Newark, I've made some wonderful friends and I've had some phenomenal conversations with people. I've learned so much about American culture that I was not aware of. I've learned about, you know, Jewish culture, in terms of you know Philip Roth kind of style, um, Newark things. I you know it has been an an experience that has both enriched me. I've learned from things, and I hopefully I've been able to give back through the activities that I've partaken in as the as the um, curator at the Ropes and Galleries. Great,
0: thank you. Well, last question. Yes. What's your favorite cultural destination in Newark? <laughs> well
1: this is a tricky one of course i have to say the ropes and galleries, but um independent of that i hate doing this because i the thing that i like is there is an extreme contrast between spaces so you know the new Newark museum is brilliant. Um, They have wonderful collections, amazing uh, contemporary art collection, but also historic collections, which for somebody like me, where I'm still, you know, consider myself a learner in terms of American art, it's wonderful. But then you have places like Gallery of Faro, Project for Empty Space, uh, all run by amazing women who are really doing some cutting-edge stuff in terms of providing opportunities for artists to put work out there, that might not have been seen on that scale in any other venue really anywhere. So, you know, I can't, it's like, I can't say which my favorite child is okay. because I have so many. And I think the beauty of it is that it's, there's a, uh, there's a whole kind of ecosystem for the arts in Newark. So you can kind of satiate any of
0: those kind of interests. I think that's a great way of putting it. It's, it's, uh, I, I, I I do like little mini walking tours with friends um, Mm -hmm. in Newark. And, uh, you know, we'll 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 go see the murals or we'll stop by a pharaoh. And, um, you know, and each time I I discover something, the people I'm with who are a lot of times native Newarkers who said, I didn't know that existed. Mm -hmm. anymore. I didn't know it existed when I was here 30 years ago or 10 years ago. Yes. It's it's such a dynamic place that keeps evolving, like New York City, like any great city, where yes. you turn the corner and you're going to be surprised.
1: Yes, and, absolutely.
0: And that, so, so thank you, Ananda, for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Roger. It's been a real pleasure to vicariously meet with you. Uh, hopefully, we'll see each other in the real world sometime.
0: Absolutely. Tune in next time for another conversation with our guests who will share their Newark, New Jersey cultural journey. If you'd like to share your Newark, New Jersey story, go to our website and submit your unique journey on our contact page. I'm your host, Roger Tucker. I look forward to sharing these fascinating Newark, New Jersey conversations with you sometime soon. So long and be well.